Um, I grew up in a tradition that was rich in types. There are other words to use for types to explain what they mean. Um, a symbol, a representation, or whatever. But in the Brethren tradition, um, everything was a type of Christ. And that's actually a biblical tradition. Um, the wonder of the Bible is often wrapped up in the types of Christ. Uh, the Bible, when we try to grasp what kind of a book it is, it's, it's either um, the masterful work of a craftsmanship or it's provided by God. And we are bent towards realizing that it's something from God when we try to figure out, could human beings really have, have put this together? One of the, the arguments about that is, is the, the fact that the Bible is replete with these types. Esther is a type of Christ. And if we go through just, you know, even the chronology of the Bible story and think about the heroes, every hero is a, a type of Christ. In one where they're pointing forward to who Christ is and, who, and what he's coming to do. Um, and, and then we can s sort of look back at them and into their historical context and into the events of their lives and realize that uh, in behind the scenes is God um, who was working everything out to give us just another snapshot of, of Jesus. And, and the whole Bible is the story of Jesus while it is the story of so many other things. But the story of Esther is one of those stories um, where we discover that she is a type of Christ. Uh, she is someone who, in a selfless way, was willing to risk her life um, for the sake of her people. And we see that casting forward into the story of Jesus. The other person in the book that we've looked at is variously known as Haman and Haman, depending on who's telling the, the story and when she's telling it, right? Um, he's, he's the villain, he's, he's not a good guy at all. And when we come down to the question uh, of who is life about, the answer that Haman would have given immediately was, it's about me. And the answer that Esther would have given is, it's about my people. It's about my, my, my cousin Mordecai and it's about our people. And it's about God, even though we don't find God's name mentioned. Her life is a testimony to someone who lives in the knowledge of a relationship with God. Uh, we can be very hard on Haman, as we should be. But honestly, when we come down to that and ask, how many times do we find ourselves in a situation where we really, somehow or other, we are preoccupied with ourselves? Uh, we wonder what people are thinking about us. We're wondering how we're doing. We're wondering if we're succeeding. We're wondering if we are dressed well enough, if, if our hairstyle is what it should be. Don't be looking at me like that, young ladies. Right? And we can easily be preoccupied with me. And that really was the story of Haman. The Book of Esther is also a literary piece. Um, it, it mirrors itself. We may have just a brief look at that next week, but it's a story of banquets. So, you know, sort of bookending the events of the story of Esther are the, the banquets. 
And what happens at those banquets is the way that the narrative kind of turns. And, you know, we, we find Kaman being a pathetically um, transparent kind of a villain. And the king, as you remember, one night can't get to sleep. And he starts reading his diary. And he remembers that someone saved his life. He remembers that there were some guards who were plotting to kill him. And there was a person, um, Mordecai, who saved his life. And he, he says, well, what have we done to thank, to thank this wonderful hero? And people say, well, it sort of came and went and we didn't do anything. We didn't even send him a cake. And the king said, well, we'll see about that. And so he has a conversation with, with Haman, and he says, um, what should happen to the person whom the king delights in? Well, Haman says, oh my goodness, whom would the king desire to honor more than me? That tells the whole tale, right? He begins to think of, aha, I can twist this and this is going to be a good day for me. So he begins to imagine all of the good things that could happen to him since obviously who would the desire the king desire more to honor than him. And so he gives his proposal and the, the king, the lovely little irony of the whole matter is the king just basically says, good do that for Mordecai. And there's the, the, you know, if you were filming this thing, you would want to capture Haman's face at that moment. For who? The person whom I despise? All of my plotting has been undone. And he's a miserable character. Along with that, um, the queen is thinking about the banquets and about an opportunity to, to be in the presence of the king. And she, far from thinking about herself, she's very ready to say, the way things have turned out, I'm not so sure that I'm going to survive this. But I'm going to go into the king, and I'm going to risk my life for my people. And if I perish, I perish. That is a lovely, noble line where she says, I don't know what will come of this. If it costs me my life, so be it. It costs me my life. As we throw this all the way forward to the story of Jesus, that's where I'd like us to go today, to see how um, she is a type of Jesus and what it is that we can sort of eke out of the story of the Bible about Jesus to learn. And in, in Luke 22... Jesus asks his friends, his disciples, a question. He says, who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. Now, we know that Jesus was a servant, is a servant. We know the whole theology of his coming to earth, of his coming in human flesh, we know all of the theology, but sometimes we don't let it just um, impact our minds and hearts with the freshness of the first time we ever heard this. So Jesus says, you know, you, you understand about serving tables and about reclining at the table. And particularly in that context, you were, you were 
absolutely reclining at the table. I mean, all of the art that we see or all of the descriptions of banquets and food gatherings have to do with people stretching out and laying back and enjoying their food, right? And the person who doesn't matter in, in the whole scenario is the servant. They come and go. They bring you your food. They run away to get more food. They take away the dishes and clean them up and bring more food, and they go back and forward. And Jesus says, in that everyday scenario, um, who's the greater one? And the disciples immediately would have said, well, well, it's the ones that recline at the table. Everybody knows that. And the order of society supported that, that that's the way it all worked. I mean, there were servants and there were, there were masters, there were mistresses, there were, there were people who were in one particular echelon, one class of society, and there were others who would not. And, and they didn't really have any hope of becoming anything more than those who served the tables, those who washed people's feet, those who cleaned up dirty places and dirty people. Life was just orderly like that. And Jesus says, so, so, so let me just press that home a little bit. We agree, don't we, that the ones that are greater are the ones that recline at the table. But I am one of the ones who serve. I am among you as one who serves. Wow. So away from the nice theology of that, the disciples, if they were really paying attention, they would have thought, oh, my goodness, that's really not how we want to characterize our master. And in fact, almost every time Jesus asserts that he is a servant or is, is going to die, as he often sort of implies, they're quick to shut him down. And they, they say, that, not like that. But like When you begin to talk like that, when you begin to... Um, propose things like that, it just gets our heads messed up because you are the master. And so Jesus has lots of interaction with his disciples and he says, you call me master, right? Well, and then here's what you should do in response to that. And, and he, he, he tries to remodel their understanding of being the leaders in a great movement for the kingdom of God. I want to go back to the theology of servanthood um, that focuses on the, the life of Jesus. And I wonder if we can't get a fresh dawning of how incredible the truth is that he came to be one serving the tables. Instead of understanding all of the lofty things that are true about him, I wonder if we can't let it dawn on us that he came to be a servant. A servant like someone who would serve tables. A servant like someone who would wash feet. A servant like someone who would do the necessary um, unpleasant activities that needed to be taken care of in the household. There are a few places in the New Testament that I regularly settle um, and John 13 is one of them, and you've heard me say it several times. But in John 13, Jesus is almost at the end of his earthly sojourn, and we're particularly interested in what he does. And John 13 uh, is John's account of what, what Jesus did. 
But he begins it by saying this, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, and then we wonder, and what? What comes after the three dots? So we could imagine um, that in our world, we would say, since this one was sent from God, was returning to God, all authority was his in heaven and earth, um, so what's he going to do with the, the last moments, the last hours, the last days of his life? What's, what's he going to do with his disciples? So the text carries on by saying, he went and got a towel and a basin and he washed their feet. Now I've, I've gone back to the grammar of this um, little narrative in John 13. And it begins with a preposition. So the prepositions are the ing words in our language. So knowing, and the preposition says knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he had come from the Father and was returning to the Father. So knowing, then John says he began to wash the disciples' feet. The preposition in Greek um, leaves open to us why it's used. Um, it, it, it could be that we could just leave it be with, a, he, he knew this, and somehow or other we can piece together that it makes sense that knowing that he would wash the disciples' feet. Maybe it's John just saying, can you imagine this, that the one that came from the Father is going to return to the Father? Imagine that, that then he washes his disciples' feet. Or another very appropriate way to, to translate this would be to say because he knew he came from the Father and was returning to the Father, he washed his disciples' feet. Or we could say, uh, again appropriately, although he knew he came from the Father and was returning to the Father, he washed his disciples' feet. I, I think the right answer is to say that, that John intended us to uh, eke out of this verse um, the word because. That somehow or other, the reason that Jesus washed his disciples' feet was that he came from the Father and he was returning to the Father and that everything had been given into his hands. And, and then we're left to wonder, well, why is that a because? Why, why does that explain his behavior? It explains his behavior, I believe, because it, it is the single most profound description of the person and work of Christ that we will find anywhere. What he went on to do, washing his disciples' feet, was a profound demonstration of, of the core truth of who he is and why he came. The fact that he came from the Father, the fact that he was returning to the Father, that everything had been given into his hands, and he washed his disciples' feet, is the juxtaposition that is the profound sort of dawning on us kind of a moment I'd like us to have this morning. That, that the, the most astonishing realization about Jesus is that the one who created everything that there is became its servant. The one who made everything became its servant. So, the place where we find the theology of it, of course, is Philippians chapter 2. And let me just unpack that a little bit this morning. 
um, from the New American Standard Version, <clears throat> we read, he existed in the form of God. The word form, and I've mentioned this before, uh, the word used here is, is the word that means the, the very deep, true essence of the person. Not just the appearance of the person, not just what the person looks like, but what the person is thoroughly, fundamentally, basically. And what Paul in this passage exposes is that Jesus existed as God through and through. through. Through and through he was God. He didn't regard regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. And scholars have nervously paraphrased that phrase in, in case we would go off on it, get the wrong idea. It doesn't literally say that he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. It literally says that he did not regard being God as something to be eagerly grasped. So why um, this has been paraphrased is um, some of the concern that, that, that this would appear to demote him, that he that his, his deity and the, and the doctrine of the deity of Christ would be under attack. But literally, it says, even though he was God, right to the core, he didn't regard being God as something to be eagerly grasped. It, it wasn't as important to him as whatever else that he was God. And that's, I think that's what's seeping into my mind finally to say, oh my goodness, um, why do we sing songs like we've been singing this morning? We sing them because we grasp something about what Jesus has done because of who he is, what he has come to do. After this little sort of trip along the equality with God versus being God, it then says, he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant. And it's, it's the same word for form. So at the start, Paul is saying he was thoroughly God. Through and through, he was God. He then goes on to say, through and through, he became a servant. Right? As thoroughly as he is God, he became a servant. My question this morning is, did he ever give up the form of the servant? I don't find anywhere where he did. He was thoroughly God. That would never change. And when he was willing not to focus on that, but to go about the mission that he had decided in the councils of eternity with the Father and Son, uh, the Father and the Spirit, um, he then became a servant to the core. And being made in the likeness of men, that goes back to another word. It, it literally means he looked like a man. doesn't mean he didn't become a real man, but it, it's not the point that Paul wants to make. Paul wants to make this point, that he was God through and through. He became a servant through and through. And the way that all happened was that he showed up in human flesh. He was found in appearance as a man. And he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What kind of a servant 
do we envision when we think about Jesus being the servant of his creation? Um, I go through a, a few sort of variations and some of these variations have become theology down through the centuries, but one is to think that he took on the persona of a servant and that we would say he, he wasn't really a servant, but he took on the role of a servant. He took on the persona of a, of a servant, that, that the mode of his work um, on God's behalf, on his behalf for humankind, was that he took on the persona of the servant. He used the means of being a servant. Doesn't quite catch it for me. Secondly, was he pretending to be a servant? That wouldn't be a terrible thing. I mean, how many fairy tales are about someone who pretended to be um, something way less than they turned out to be He's truly a prince who's just pretending to be a pauper. Um, was Jesus just pretending to be a servant? Um, what kind of a servant was he in, in the Downton Abbey scheme of things? Was he an upstairs servant or a downstairs servant? I mean, what are we talking about here? Because this is what God has given us, that Jesus came to be a servant. So we're ready you know, sort of to go to town with, well, what does that mean? What kind of a servant did he come to be? Um, did he come to be one of those pretentious kinds of servants, like, you know, some of the shows about the U.S. and the president, and there's this person who says, uh, I serve at the pleasure of the president, which means I'm a very important person around here. You should pay attention to me, right? What kind of a servant did he come to be? The word that is, is used is the word for a bond servant. I mean, it's, it's a word that is thoroughly demeaning. It's a word that if you were to call someone a servant, it either has no value or neutral value or negative value. I mean, it's not, it's not anything anybody aspired to be. When we come across people in our society, given our sensibilities, we want to be very careful not to be talking down to them or to be thinking ill of them or, or to be uh, you know, thinking they found their place and they should stay there. That, we're always in the business of, of saying, no, people should be you know, moving up. Um, the great American dream is to, to come no matter where you've come from, no matter how lowly you are, that you could become president of this great country. You, you can become all the things you would love to become. And here, against that kind of a notion, the Bible tells us that Jesus decided to be a servant and he became one and unless there's something that I've not seen in the New Testament, that was never rescinded. So the thing that is unimaginable and, and that is, is, is really incredibly difficult to grasp is that he is the servant in his creation. I mean, we, we might say that he was and is a servant um, who came to die in his creation. He's a servant who came to die with his creation. 
And the truth is he's a servant who came to die for his creation. Why did he become a servant? He became a servant because that was, in, in the wisdom of God, the way that, that God would, would um, recreate a fallen world where God could take the brokenness of all of us and fix it. The way in which God could confound the enemy and through the strangest course of events uh, bring about uh, the ultimate day when the Father says he is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He's the one who has the name above all names. That at his name, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. But even with all that said, I find nothing um, to sort of satisfy us to say that he's not a, he's not a servant anymore. Um, the universe's secret is that its creator has become its servant. And its creator has met death and joined in death for all of us to be able to come out of death. It was necessary. And he came to serve not out of reluctance, not out of necessity. He came to do the will of the Father. He came to serve. The Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life. And the story in Philippians is, um, it's often called the kenosis, which means the emptying. It's, it's a series of steps downward. Um, and and the, the bottom rung is even death on a cross. Why do we worship? Why do, why do we read our Bibles? Why do we pray? Because we've grasped, you know, in, in increments more and more the profound mystery of God's grace in which we have been set free by a servant who came to go into death for us, to go into death with us and to lead us out of death into the victory of eternal life. The stories of the Bible are stories of heroes. They are types of Christ. Esther said, if I perish, I perish. Jesus said, I have come to do your will, O oh God. And as we look back on the life of Jesus, um, and know him now to be the one who's exalted as the King of kings and Lord of lords. Know him now to be the lamb slain before the foundation of the world who still bears the marks of Calvary. Um, we will not respond to him as a servant, though he is. We will respond to him as the Lord of lords. And we will bow the knee and we will confess. And we will not be ashamed of the story of Jesus. We'll not be ashamed of the name of Jesus. And we will delight to be the friends of a servant. And then as we try to live our lives as he lived his life, 
we will learn so many lessons about serving one another instead of being served. We will learn so many lessons about just ridding ourselves of the obsession to care about us, to protect us, um, to make others think well of us, to to get what we want, to get what we deserve. We will divest ourselves of those things. When we understand that every breath of his life was a breath in which he was a servant to his creation. And today he continues to be the servant of this creation. He holds the universe together. The work of this servant is the word that the work that sustains all that he has done, um, in which the father is constantly looking at him and saying, it's good. When the sun rose this morning, the father said to the sun, it's good, it's morning again. When the stars began to appear, the father said, remember when you created those? And when the father looks upon our world and sees its sadness, The father says to the son, but remember, you came to serve and you came to go into their death with them and for them. And one day, um, you will be the one who leads the victory march as all of death and hell lets go of its captors. And Jesus has proven to be the one who is um, the name above all names at which name every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he's Lord. Let me pray. Father, just show us something about the truth of the marvelous servant king who is your son. And Father, might we find ourselves ashamed like the disciples when we're caught up uh, wanting our way or wanting to be uh, the first. And show us that Jesus in such a magnificent way has proven that serving others um, is a far better choice than being served. Thank you for who he is for what he has done, for who he is and will be, for the day when uh, every knee and every tongue will confess. We look forward to that and look forward to his exaltation uh, at your right hand in heaven on high. In Jesus' name.